Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will begin to examine the basic elements of one of the most sought-after career fields in sport management, the career of the sport marketer. So if you ever wondered what the major purposes of sport marketing is or how their job is unique and different from all other marketers, this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, what I want to do is I want to take a step back from previous podcasts because we've done a lot of talk about the sport consumer. We had a whole podcast about what are we fans of and how do we consume sport. We had a podcast that talked about what actually makes us fans. And so we've talked around an idea, but we haven't gotten into it specifically. And that's what I want to do today. I want to focus on the idea of sport marketing and promotion. And I want to really just answer one very simple question. Why do we study sport marketing specifically? In college, we have classes that are specifically designed to teach students about the field of sport marketing. But why do we even need that? Because most colleges have a marketing degree where students learn a ton of both basic and really complex marketing terminology, practice, and theory. So why do colleges then have a sport-specific class dealing with just the sport industry? We're not going to answer that this minute, but by the end of our podcast today, my hope is that the information that I've given you has proven why we need sport marketing, but also in doing so taught you a little bit about what sport marketing is, why we need it, and how we should approach it as practitioners, and maybe a little bit as researchers as well. So let's begin with a very simple, straightforward question. Where does the money come from for professional sport organizations, for collegiate sport organizations, really for any type of sport organization out there? It's not as easy as you would think to answer because most people, when I pose that question to them, well, they say, well, it comes from two places. It comes from ticket sales and it comes from broadcast deals. Well, that's right. Ticket sales do make up a large portion of the money that's made. But increasingly in our day and age with HD television and all of these channels that are designed specifically to broadcast out sporting events, we see less and less of revenue generation coming from ticket sales, especially at the professional arena. So the next answer that people would give, as I said, is broadcast deals. And as you see, ticket sales and broadcast deals oftentimes go hand in hand because broadcast deals have been found in part to actually result in lower ticket sales because more people can actually watch games on television. And broadcast deals don't just include television. They also include radio, which is a much smaller portion of revenue generation, and also internet rights. Who has the right to take the content and put it up on the internet in what form and how it's used? So those are the two basic answers, ticket sales and broadcasts. But there's other ways that money is generated as well. One of them, which generates a ton of revenue 
for professional organizations and for colleges is what I call the game day sale of things. So think about all the things you buy when you go to a game besides the ticket, right? You might go to the game and you might go by yourself or you're probably going to go with other people. Let's say you're going with a family of four. Let's say you're married and you have two kids. Well, the first thing you're going to have to do in addition to buying those tickets is you're going to have to park somewhere. There's not free parking at stadiums. Almost every stadium in the professional organizations have some type of paid parking that if you want to be close, you're going to have to pay money. In college, it's the same. Most colleges will charge money for parking. So you have to buy parking pass or you have to buy game day parking. Now, as you and your family is going in, you get into the stadium and maybe you buy a program for your kids so they know who the players are. You buy a program for yourself so you know a little bit more about what's going on. Or maybe you're going to a Major League Baseball game and you buy your scores card because you're old school and you like to keep score yourself. That is a sale that's generating revenue. And now as you're there sitting throughout the game, you're going to want to go get a hot dog. You're going to go want to go get a beer or a Coke. That's concession sales. Maybe you want to go buy a hat or a jersey or a t-shirt of the team. That's merchandise sales. Maybe they have little trinkets that they sell, like novelty items. So we have we have an array of things that are being sold during the game that are generating revenue for the team. And those things aren't just being sold during the game. I can go and I can buy items on the internet before or after game. I can go and buy t-shirts or jerseys or hats. I can go and buy all of that, and that's still generating money. But the way I like to phrase this, think about what you might buy when you go to that game with that family. So that's the third major thing that's contributing. Now, in college, we also have have three other types of things that are contributing to the money and where that money comes from. The first thing that we have for a lot of colleges is what we call game guarantees. The easiest way to think about these are think about that smaller Division I program, like a Coastal Carolina, being paid money to go and play a bigger school. So... In 2017, Coastal Carolina was paid almost a million dollars to go and play Arkansas. This past year, Coastal Carolina was paid almost a million dollars to go and play USC. So that's money that's being generated. And those types of guarantees are not only in football. We see them some in basketball as well. So that's another source of revenue for athletic departments. We see postseason payouts in college. Think about the money that's generated from going to bowl games. Think about the NCAA men's and women's basketball tournament. That's revenue that's generated that the NCAA pays back to the schools in various forms. And finally, specific to college, actually one of the biggest contributors to the revenue that most people don't think of are what we call subsidies student fees, or direct money that comes from the government, or direct money that comes from the institution. And so we have all of these ways to generate money. But the question you're probably wondering is, what does this have to do with sport marketing at all? Well, as a sport marketer, or as a person that's doing the marketing for a sport organization, we can't control all of these items. We can only control some of them. And the thing that we have the biggest control over is something like ticket sales because the whole point of sport marketing is to try to sell our product to the consumer, to try to get what we call butts in seats, to get those individuals to actually come to the game. Because once they come to the game, maybe they'll buy those other things that we talked about and that helps generate revenue. And so we have a big part in this money and where it comes from. 
Now, there's other things that we have nothing to do with. We don't have anything to do as a sport marketer with those postseason payouts. We don't have anything in college to do with those subsidies that we receive. In college, we don't have anything to do with those broadcasting deals. In the professionals, the professional sport marketers, they don't have anything to do with those massive broadcasting deals because those are dealt with by the leagues. And so we can see that there is a very specific need for someone who has knowledge base on how to sell tickets and how to get individuals to come to contest in sport. Because a lot of these other things that I talked about actually don't generate as much money as people assume. Take, for just instance, bowl games. Now, I did a whole podcast on bowl games, on the history of bowl games. We talk about the payoffs in those bowl games and how that works. And I would advise you to go listen to it. It's a great podcast. But the short answer of that is bowl game money, the money that's generated from that bowl game, the individual school doesn't just get to keep all that money. That money actually goes to the conference and it's split up amongst all the schools in the conference. So even if you didn't go to a bowl game, you still get bowl game money. And so Ohio State making it to a bowl game is great for Ohio State and they do get a lot of benefits out of that. But that money that was generated first goes to the conference and then the conference pays that out to all the schools. And so a school like Rutgers who didn't make it to a bowl game still is receiving some of that money. So it's not as much as you would think. What is a lot, though, as I said, is that subsidization. And again, we don't control that. But just to give you an idea about how much money is just generated from subsidies, last year in the 2017-2018 school year, 6% of programs, only 6% of Division I programs, did not receive some form of subsidies. That means of the 230 Division I programs that are public schools, only 14 did not receive any money from the institution, the government, or from their student fees. On average, of those 230 schools, on average, an institution actually receives 51% of their revenue from subsidies. That means 49% of that revenue that's generated comes from those other things. That just shows you how much we're dependent upon the institution in college. Let's dive just a little bit deeper into this and let's dissect one college specifically. And the college I want to look at is Coastal Carolina. Now, the numbers that I have are from the 2016-2017 school year. These are the most up-to-date that I could find. Coastal Carolina has 18 varsity sports. Coastal Carolina is a good view of your average Division I program. They're in the Sunbelt Conference. They play in the FBS level for football. They've done very well uh, at the divisional level. They've had success at the national level in sports. Their total revenue that they generated in 2016-2017 was $33,703,994. And what I want to talk about is the breakdown of where that money came from. So the first thing that we talked about, that idea of ticket sales, because that's what most people equate to the biggest generator of revenue for professional and college teams. If you were to guess, out of that $33 million, how much would you think that Coastal Carolina would generate from ticket sales? Most students, when we ask this, when I've done these lectures in class, have talked about the idea of probably $10 million, about a third of that money. In fact, they only generated $792,591, which is 2.35% of the total revenue they made. 
So the majority of the money did not come from the sales of tickets. What that leads to is those other things that we talked about, those jersey sales, those t-shirts, the merchandise, all of that, we can't sell as much because we don't have people coming to the games. How can we sell someone concession items if they're not coming to the game? The next thing that we talked about were the broadcasting rights. And how do we put our games on TV? Now, this number is a little bit bigger, and it makes more sense. They've made about $3 million from broadcast rights and license deals, which license deals include the merchandising license to put logos on shirts or jerseys and sell those. So $3.2 million, which is 9.69% of the revenue that they generated, came from broadcast rights and licensing deals. So far, we've only accounted for $4 million. The question you should be asking is, well, where does the rest of this money come from? Because we only have $4 million so far, and almost all of it is coming directly from subsidization. $28,351,293, which is 84% of the operating revenue, comes from subsidization. $23 million of that is direct money from the institution, meaning the institution is taking your tuition dollars at Coastal Carolina and $23 million of that that they've created or that they've generated, that goes directly to the athletic department to operate. Students wonder oftentimes, why is our tuition so high? Athletics is a big part of that cost at different institutions. Remember, only 14 did not take money from the institution, which means 216 colleges at the Division I level took money from the institution that students are paying, and they gave some of that tuition money directly to athletics in order to operate. Now, for students, that probably makes you upset. For parents, that probably makes you more upset because some of that money that you might be helping with is going directly to the athletic department. But from a sport marketer standpoint, what that tells us is we need to do a better job of selling tickets. We need to do a better job of getting people to games because if we can increase that $792,000 that we generated through ticket sales, if we can increase that even to $5 million, that means we can cut money that's coming from the institution, meaning the tuition money doesn't have to be as high. And by the way, I left out one fact that $5 million comes directly from student fees, meaning in that long tuition bill you have at the very bottom where you have all these fees like a computer lab fee, maybe a library fee, maybe a bus fee. In addition to that, you have a sports fee and that sports fee that you're paying every single semester, that money goes directly to the athletic department in addition to some of your regular tuition going there. And so as sport marketers, we should look at this and say, how can we better promote and market our team to get more people excited, to get more people coming in? The other thing that students often will tell me when I lecture on this in classes or at conferences, they'll say, well, what about donors? Because in college, we have donors that might donate large chunks of money, which is true at your big state institutions. It's also true at your big private institutions, Harvard, Yale, Ohio State. They don't have to worry at all about subsidies because they have these massive contributions and donations coming in. But most of your colleges that are competing at the Division I level are not those massive schools. And so Coastal Carolina, they're only getting about a million dollars a year coming from donations. If I'm looking at this from an athletic director standpoint, and I'm looking at how revenue is generated at your kind of average Division I program, 
What I should focus on is trying to figure out a way to increase my ticket sale revenue, which is the lowest of my revenue creation. So that way I don't have to be taking as much money from the institution. And the way that we increase those ticket sales is through great marketing campaigns. In fact, in a survey that was done back in 2010, they asked athletic directors what their biggest concern was, what the biggest issue and challenge was in their job. And 40% of them that were surveyed, 40% of them said revenue generation was their number one concern. And that sh- that's reflected in that structure that we talk about because they're so dependent on the institution for revenue. And at a certain point, the institution might not have any more money to give because they can't raise student fees anymore or they can't raise tuition anymore. So the question becomes, how else can we create revenue without having to rely so much on the institution? And the answer, again, is through great marketing campaigns that are going to attract those consumers to buy tickets and maybe even attract more donations to the school. This idea of ticket sales being so important, it's it's not just an issue in college athletics, it's also an issue in professional sports. If we look at the numbers, and if we track just the last four years in our three major professional sports, the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball, what you see is that both the NFL and the NBA are pretty stagnant when it comes to attendance numbers. I won't go through every single year for the last five years, but the easiest way to look at attendance trends is not to look at how many people are coming to games, but is rather to look at how many tickets I'm actually selling in what we call a percent capacity. Because I might have 20,000 people come to a game, but my stadium might hold 40,000. So that means I have a lot of room to grow. So for the NFL stadium, if I tell you that the average attendance in 2018 was 67,000, that doesn't mean much to you. But if I told you that the NFL is selling on average 95% of their tickets to games, that tells you that they're selling almost every single ticket to almost every single game. And people have talked a lot in the media about how the NFL is is declining in popularity. We talk about that in another podcast from last year. But in 2015, there was 96% capacity. In 2016, there was 97% capacity. In 2017, there was 96% capacity. In 2018, there's 95% capacity. So we are pretty stable at the NFL. But one of the reasons why they do such a good job of getting that high percent capacity is because they have really smart people who understand not only marketing, but they understand how sport is unique and different and thus understand how to create unique marketing campaigns around that. The NBA is very similar. Percent capacity has been pretty stable this past year in 2018 season. They're 94% capacity, which is up a little bit because in 2015, there was 92% capacity. In 2016 and 2017, there was 93% capacity. So again, the NBA is doing a very good job of selling those tickets, of creating those marketing campaigns that are attracting fans to the sport. On the other end, though, we have the third of the big three professional sports leagues, Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball is actually seeing a decline in percent capacity. Now, Major League Baseball is a little bit different. I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But remember, Major League Baseball, you have 81 home games you have to sell tickets to. So you have a lot more games, which makes it hard to sell out every single competition. With that in mind, this past year in 2018, the percent capacity was only 66.63%. 
which means only two-thirds of the stadium was full on average across the entire league. That number is down from 69% capacity in 2016 and 2017 and down from 70% capacity in 2015. In fact, this past year, only four teams in the entire league had an attendance over 90% capacity. 22 teams had an average attendance at or below 60% capacity. So while the NFL and the NBA are doing well with some of their marketing campaigns and attracting these individuals to the sport, Major League Baseball is facing some of those similar challenges that a school like Coastal Carolina is. They're not drawing as many fans to games. They're not making that money from the ticket revenue, which means there's a lot of revenue that's potentially left on board that they could go out and attract. So again, how do we do that? We rely on sport marketers to create marketing campaigns. So while we see that Major League Baseball has some challenges right now in getting people to actually come to games, the NFL and the NBA, even though their percent capacities are much higher, they're not immune from some of these challenges that are out there. And particularly, all three of these leagues and the NCAA face challenges of having an overly competitive marketplace and competition within sports. And let's start by talking about that second one, that competition within sports. Think about the growth of the sport industry over the last 20, 30, 40 years. If we were to go back into the 1980s and you wanted to watch a football game on TV, you didn't have that many options. You might be able to watch a game on NBC and maybe a game on CBS, and that was it. It was much harder to watch your favorite team. But today, with the growth of the internet, with the explosion of sport networks, we can watch any sport we want almost at any time. If I woke up this morning and I wanted to watch soccer, I could go to Fox Soccer Channel and I could find soccer specifically. So the increase in availability of sport in the media has led to all of these sport leagues and sport teams competing with each other for viewership and for fans, which means that as a sport fan, I can cherry pick any game I want to watch. I don't have to watch what they're selling me. And if I live in one place, I don't have to watch the local team. I can watch any team from around the world because of globalization, the internet, and the increase in these sport networks. And that competition makes it harder for these individual sport leagues and these teams to get fans to consume their product. And so teams have to deal with this. They can't just go and say, hey, we're an NBA team, come watch us. They have to come up with, again, creative marketing ideas, ways to sell their product to individuals that might want to consume other sports in the area, or maybe they want to stay home and watch sports on TV. And it's not just sports leagues that we're competing with. We also have the challenge of of competing with other forms of the entertainment industry because sport and entertainment are trying to do the same thing. Think about watching a sports game on TV versus watching a movie. The goal of both is the exact same. The goal of both is to entertain you. They go about it in different ways though. And so as a sports team, I not only have to compete with all the other sports teams, I have to compete with the whole entity of the entertainment business. And I like to illustrate this by telling people to think about the city of New York. So if I'm the New York Yankees, or you're the GM of the Yankees, or you're the uh, CMO, the chief marketing operator, think about all that you have to compete with in the city of New York. Just from a sports 
standpoint. The Yankees are competing with the Mets, obviously. They're both within Major League Baseball. The Yankees are also competing with all other Major League Baseball teams. Because just because I live in New York doesn't mean I'm a Mets or Yankees fan. I might be a fan of the Dodgers. I might be a fan of the Atlanta Braves or the Red Sox. I could be a fan of anyone. So they're competing with all other Major League Baseball teams. And they're competing most directly with the Mets. Now, we don't just have baseball in the city of New York, though. We also have two football teams in the Jets and the Giants. We also have two NBA teams in the Knicks and the Nets. We also have a WNBA team in the Liberty. We have professional hockey that's being played. We have the Rangers. We have the Islanders. And we also have two major league, major league soccer franchises there in the Red Bull and New York City FC. So we have over 10 professional sports leagues that we're competing with just in our city. In addition to competing with all those teams, think about everything else there is to do for entertainment in New York. I have to compete with the Broadway shows. I have to compete with the movie theaters. I have to compete with all those other activities that an individual can choose to do instead of coming to my sporting event or instead of watching that on TV. So these franchises, these NFL teams, these NBA teams, these NCAA schools that have athletic programs, they have a very, very competitive marketplace that they are dealing with, both in terms of straight sport competition and other entertainment options. And as a sport marketer, I have to understand what makes my product unique. What can I emphasize to try to sell individuals and convince them to buy my product to come watch my team versus doing all those other options? And this leads us into talking about what sport marketing actually is. Because I think we've set the table well. We've talked about this need for revenue generation. We've talked about the idea of competition. But all this comes back to this idea of what sport marketing actually is. And sport marketing, by definition, it's the specific application of marketing principles and processes to sports products and to the marketing of non-sport products through association with sports. In other words, sport marketing consists of all activities designed to meet the needs and wants of sport consumers through the exchange process. Dictionary definitions are always tough for people, so let's break it down into what we call the two major thrusts. These are the two things that marketers focus on. The first of these things is what we call the marketing of the sports product to the sport consumers. The easiest way to think about this is butts and seats. Sport marketing first deals with getting people to choose to come and buy their product, to come and watch their competition or to watch their competition on TV. That's the first major thrust of sport marketing. The second one is the marketing of sport and non-sports through sport. I tell people to think of this as sponsorship. It doesn't matter whether you're a sport company or you're a bank or you're a hospital or your university, it doesn't matter what you are. If you are trying to use a sports team to help raise awareness of your product, that is part of the sport marketing. One of the prime examples of this that we oftentimes talk about as sport marketers or people who teach sport marketing or lecture on it is Citibank deciding to enter into a sponsorship agreement with the New York Mets. This is a great example because at the time we were going through the financial crisis and the banks were being bailed out, but Citibank still chose to enter a 10-year, $250 million agreement with the Mets to have the stadium named after the bank. And so what we end up with now is City Field, which is where the Mets played their home games. 
most people wouldn't, wouldn't see that as a part of marketing, but it is a major part of marketing because what Citibank is doing is they're using the New York Mets to help market their own product. So as sport marketers, we deal with getting butts in seats and we deal with this idea of sponsorship. Oftentimes, we don't care whether it is a sports company like maybe a Nike or Adidas that wants to partner with us or whether it's a bank. What we care about is how much money we can generate through these sponsorship deals and what those deals can do for us past just the money. And so sport marketing deals with not just getting people in the stadium, not just with getting those butts in seats, not just with getting people and making people fans. It also deals with selling sponsorships, of working out deals with other corporations so that they can put their name on our product so they can generate revenue and we can generate revenue in return. This idea of sport marketing and these major thrusts aren't as simple and straightforward as you would think because we do have a number of challenges. Like I said, City Field is one of the great examples of a success in sport marketing because it generates $250 million, $25 million a year for the Mets. But we still see baseball having trouble getting people in seats, that first major thrust of sport marketing. And so the major challenge that we see with marketing in sport is this idea of marketing myopia. Myopia is this notion of a lack of foresight, of this inability to look ahead and work towards a common goal. We focus on the here and now rather than building towards the future. And what that looks like in terms of sport marketing is a lot of people just copying everyone else's idea. So think about Major League Baseball, the professional sport league that's probably struggling the most with in-game attendance right now based on the numbers that we talked about. Baseball, you might say, has some of the most creative marketing ideas out there. They have 81 home games. They do a ton of promotions. But I want you to think in depth about what the promotions are, the last game you went to, because they're fairly common across every team. Almost every team does fireworks at some point during the year. Almost every team has a kid's day where kids can come maybe for half price and they maybe get to run around the bases or they get an autographed ball or something. Most of them will do some type of discount on food. Maybe it's a dime a dog night. Maybe it's a buck a brat night. Or one of the things that's become really common is buck a brew night where beers are only a dollar. If you think about the marketing campaigns that you've seen and the promotions that have been out there, They're pretty common because everyone's just copying. And what happens is, in terms of marketing anything, once everyone starts to do it, it becomes what we call white noise as a consumer. We ignore it. Think about TV commercials. I know people don't watch live TV as much anymore, so they're not watching commercials. But just think about when you were watching TV, if commercials come up. Most of us don't even pay attention to them. We could actually be looking straight at the screen. We could watch commercials for three minutes. Our game comes back on or a television show comes back on. If I were to ask you in five minutes what those commercials were, you probably wouldn't be able to remember at all. Maybe there's one out there. But the one you remember is going to be the one that was different, not the one that was doing the same thing as everyone else. The same thing is true for sport promotions. If I just do what everyone else is doing, it starts to all blend in and we don't have an effect because it no longer seems special, no longer seems unique. And baseball has unfortunately fallen into this trap. The other major entity that's fallen into this trap with sport marketing are athletic departments. Athletic departments look at successful programs around the country. They look at your big state schools, your Texas Longhorns, your Ohio State Buckeyes, 
your University of South Carolina, your Clemson University. They'll look at those programs and say, what are they doing? And then they copy. The problem is by copying, I'm just blending into what everything else is. I'm not standing out and being unique. That's marketing myopia. And we see it way too much in part because people don't have the knowledge specific to sport to understand what makes it unique, what makes it different. And then in turn, how to take that knowledge and forecast it over into a great marketing plan and a great promotion. So this idea of marketing myopia is a big challenge that sport marketers face, especially ones who haven't had a background in sport marketing, which leads to another problem that marketing face. It's poor sales training and techniques. Most people aren't good at selling. In sport, what oftentimes happens is you're given a script when you start a sales job. And remember, sales and marketing are inevitably tied in sports because all marketing is, is trying to get individuals to purchase your product, which is tickets to the game or merchandise or choosing to watch your game on TV. So if I don't have individuals that are well trained in how to sell, then it doesn't matter how good my marketing efforts are. And that lack of training again deals with this notion of why we need something that's specific to sport. And finally, kind of looping it all together, the third major challenge that these sport organizations face when it comes to sport marketing is just a lack of market research. With Marketing Myopia, I said, we tend to just do what everyone else is doing instead of doing research, finding what the consumer wants, and then figuring out how to position my product in a way that the consumer will buy it. Let me say that again, because it's important. What we're doing in marketing, we're not changing our product around. We're trying to do research and gain knowledge so we can figure out what the consumer wants so that I can take my product and promote it and advertise it and market it in a way that it meets what those consumers want. Without that research, though, we can't do that. And too oftentimes in sport, either we don't have the money, we don't have the time, or we don't have the knowledge base to actually do that research. And so we have these three challenges of myopia, of lack of research, of poor sales training and technique that really are affecting sport marketing. But the question you should be asking then is, well, how do we get around them? Well, we get around them by understanding what makes sports so unique. And let's start by just doing a very basic comparison. Because I said that not only is sport competing with other sports to get fans, but we're also competing with the entertainment industry. Any activity that someone can go and do in their free time or as a form of recreation, we're competing with that. So I wanna just do a basic comparison. I wanna ask you to think about watching a sports event on TV live, like the national championship for college football, or going to a movie theater and watching a movie. Sure, there are a number of similarities between the two. It is a fairly inactive process. I'm sitting and I'm watching. The goal of both, the movie and the national championship, is to entertain me, so that's very similar. But there are actually way more differences than there are similarities. For example, the product that we're dealing with is very different. The sports product is extremely unique. And in this case, we're talking about just the product of having a game on TV. And that sports product, it is simultaneously made and consumed. Meaning, the game is being produced at the exact same time I'm watching it. Compare that to a movie, that's very different. The movie was made a year ago, and now I'm consuming it. The reason that matters is because... If it's being produced and consumed at the same time, that means in order to consume it, I have to watch it 
right when it's being played. People have told me in the past, well, what about TiVo or DVR? You can tape the game. That's true, but think about the effect that has. It is very different watching the national championship live versus watching it in a week. Because in a week, I'm going to probably already know the news story around it. I'm going to already know the outcome. If I have any interest in those teams or the game, I'm going to have found out what happened. And watching a sporting event when you know what happens is very different versus a movie. If it was made a year ago, it doesn't matter because it's still the first time I'm seeing it. If it was made 20 years ago, it doesn't matter. So this idea of the sports product being unique is important in marketing because we can tell people the only way that you can consume this and get the most out of it is if you are watching it live. Movie in the entertainment industry is very different. This highlights another factor of why it's so important to watch live and how we can sell that as marketers is the notion that every single time a game is being played, we have no idea what the outcome is. And every single time a game is being played, something unique and different can happen. If I were to watch the Boston Celtics play a basketball game tonight, that is a unique experience. If I watch them tomorrow night in a different game, something completely different is going to happen. Tonight, I might watch a game and Kyrie Irving might go off and have 35 points and the Celtics might win. The next night, he might go 0 for 6 from the field, get hurt and not play more than a quarter and they could lose. Those two experiences are completely different. Uh, Whereas if I were to go to a movie, let's say I wanted to go and watch the new Infinity Wars movie. Well, the first time I see it, it's going to be a unique experience. But then if I were to watch it again, going to be a similar experience because I already know everything that's going to happen. And movies entertainment are different from sport in that way in that after we consume it once, it's very predictable because we know exactly what's going to happen. We might get something a little bit different out of the experience. As we see it, we might pay attention to certain things differently, but it's still the exact same product that's out there. Whereas sports, if I watch it today and I watch it tomorrow, it's going to be completely different. And the reason this is important for us as sport marketers to know and understand is because it is these unique factors that I should be pushing in my marketing and promotional campaigns. The fact that this is important and this is the only time you can watch it and it's going to be so unique. If I can establish that in a marketing campaign, if I can promote that out and I can get a consumer to buy it, they're more likely to choose to consume my products than other forms of entertainment. That's just one type of sport product that we're talking about. We're just talking in that instance about the actual competitions that are occurring. But there's other sport products that are out there too. Remember, the sport industry is this massive industry that consumes everything. It, it also includes individuals participating in sport. And so we have sport products that we're selling like sporting goods, equipment, apparel, shoes, licensed merchandise, especially like we talked about with colleges and universities and professional teams. They're selling licensed merchandise. And even that merchandise is unique because we just talked about how the product of sport, of watching a game, it is simultaneously produced and consumed. It is what we call intangible. I can't touch, taste, or feel physically a sporting contest. I can't take it home with me at the end of the day. But what I can take home with me is a t-shirt from the game, is a ball cap is a pair of shoes that my favorite player wears. And so so this product of sporting goods is, again, something that is unique from other forms of entertainment and that it allows me to make an intangible product tangible. 
And those individuals that understand that in sport marketing are able to capitalize off that and increase revenue production through selling these items that are adjacent to the core product that we have. What's also unique about the sport product and this idea of sport marketing is the sport marketplace in general. And by that, I mean this idea of who consumes sports because sport is something that is consumed by a vast number of people. And in the podcast that I did talking about the sport fans, we laid this out and how many fans there are out there. But in general, there are roughly 200 million sport fans in America, but that is a wide variance. You have those individuals who are casual fans who might only watch a game every once in a while. Maybe they only turn into the major games like the Super Bowl or the Olympics every four years to the extreme fans who will watch and consume not only the game on TV, but the news afterwards and the stories online the next day. So we have this wide spectrum of sport fans and those sport fans are just one part of the sport marketplace, those fans and spectators. We also have those individuals who participate that are part of that sport marketplace. Those individuals that are actually playing in competitions, whether that's from the professional all the way down to the youth leagues. And then the third aspect of the marketplace are the sponsors. Remember, I said Citibank is a sponsor. They're a part of the sport marketplace because I, as a sport marketer, am trying to sell those companies on using my team to help promote their product or their company. And so the sport marketplace is unique. Entertainment industry doesn't have all those different sectors that they're trying to go out and market to and get to buy their product. So what all this leads to is this notion of marketing orientation, which is just a way of doing business where the organization concentrates on understanding the consumer and provides a sports product that meets the consumer's needs while still achieving the organization's goal. And so to truly understand what marketing orientation is in sport, you have to understand what sport is, what makes it unique, not just from the individual sport level, but from the macro level that we've been discussing today. And the greater that understanding is of what makes it unique allows you as an individual working within that organization allows you to be more successful. And so let's go back to that very first question I asked, the overarching question for this entire podcast today. Why do we need something specific called sport marketing? Why can't someone just take a basic marketing class or get a degree in marketing and just go and work in a sport company? Well, you can, but it's going to take you much longer to understand the uniqueness of what you're trying to sell. The idea of a sport marketing focused course or sport marketing specific lectures like this is to start to educate people about what their product is. So that way they can go and look at what the consumers want. They understand their product better so they can position it, like we said, in a way that they'll be more likely to buy. Without that understanding, if you take someone with just a basic marketing background or degree and put them into a sport context, they can try all the different marketing techniques and strategies that they have, but until they fully understand the uniqueness of sport, of what makes it so different than other entertainment options, or what makes it so different than the other sport options in the area or on TV, that individual is only going to be able to have limited success. Because what they're probably going to do is they're going to fall into that trap of marketing myopia, of looking at what other companies are doing and just copying without truly understanding who their fan base is, what sport is, what makes it unique, what makes it different, and then being able to capitalize on that. That's why I talk about and focus on the need for a very specific sport marketing education. And 
that sport marketing education begins with some of the same ideas that are applied to all marketing. Things like the marketing matrix, which is the coordination of the four P's of marketing, the idea of product, place, price, and promotion. But remember, those ideas within sport are very different than those ideas within entertainment or within the marketing for a tangible product. Now, I don't want to get into that today because that could go on and on. But as the year goes on, we will dive more and more into this idea of sport marketing, talking about some of the uniqueness, talking about why certain marketing campaigns have been successful and why they haven't. We'll do that as the year goes on. I'm going to be having some special guests talking with me about ways that they have actually put these marketing principles into works at actual sport organizations. Be prepared and be on the lookout for those future podcasts. If you're interested more in sport marketing, I'd love to hear from you. We're on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Please give us a follow and feel free to reach out and ask any questions. Until next time, though, thank you for listening to this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.